0: Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to September's edition of Recharge by Battery Materials Review. In this month's edition of the podcast, I'm delighted to have got the chance to speak to Matt Harper, who's Chief Commercial Officer of AIM-listed Invinity Energy Systems, who gives us some very interesting perspectives on a stationary storage technology, which has a lot of potential, but has, up until now, lacked a gigafactory moment. But before we get on to that, here's some of the key features, news, and analysis from September's edition of Battery Materials Review. Our focus article this month is on incentive pricing. For those that don't know, incentive prices are the prices that need to be reached before companies will be incentivized to build new capacity. It's not going to be enough for materials prices to get off the trough. Prices need to rise high enough, not only for companies to cover their operating costs, but also their capital costs, and most importantly, to make a positive return for investors on top of that. This issue of return is a factor that many commentators don't consider enough when they consider incentive pricing. And it's very much in focus this month, considering the comments by Paul Graves, CEO of Livent, who warned of what he called the voodoo economics, which is being practiced by many downstream participants in the industry who seem to want to force raw material prices down, but want companies to invest in new capacity at the same time. Our analysis suggests that nickel prices need to rise 10 to 20% from current levels, lithium carbonate prices around 50%, and spodumene concentrate prices 85% before new greenfield capacity additions could be considered. Moving on to the news, and in the raw materials space this month, the EU has added lithium to its list of critical raw materials. Without being facetious, now we just need less hot air and more actual investment in raw material supply the EU has made large amount of funds available for the battery and car industries, but very little so far for actual raw material supply. Elsewhere, there's been chatter in the market about both China and Japan building strategic reserves of battery raw materials. And maybe this is something that EU needs to consider as well, particularly since it does seem reticent to pull the trigger on actually financing new mines. Chinese battery producer CATL Indicated that it has earmarked about 2.8 billion US dollars to invest in the battery value chain. If it wants to buy individual projects, then that's not a hell of a lot. But if it wants to part fund multiple projects, then that seems like a reasonable amount. In the lithium space, most of the lithium CEOs were conservative for their second half outlooks after a weak Q2 reporting season. But at BMR, we're starting to hear of improvements in sentiment, particularly in the lithium hydroxide supply chain. August was the best month for financing activity and battery materials since March 2019 with two big equity raises. Linus Corp's $425 million raise in the rare earth space and Oricobre's $156 million raise in lithium. Elsewhere in the space there wasn't too much to talk about but the fact that these two big raises got away has to be positive for sentiment. Nevertheless, funds raised in battery materials as a whole are still down 58% for the year to date. And we need to see significant amounts of expansionary capital raises if we're going to fill the impending supply and demand gap. Moving downstream now, and all eyes in the industry are fixed on the Tesla battery day on the 22nd of September, whether we're going to see a revolutionary technology announcement or just incremental improvements, we don't know. But we certainly know it's going to be a great entertainment. Elsewhere, there have been lots of announcements on batteries this month. Korea's SK Innovation is to focus on pushing beyond NMC811 towards 9 half by 2023 and towards 98% nickel in its formulations by 2030. Consultant ID TechX suggests that solid-state batteries will start to thrive in the latter part of the decade and CATL has plans to make the battery pack redundant by 2030 focusing on cell-to-chassis technology, which should save a lot of weight in the vehicles. Tie-ups between battery makers and OEMs are continuing, with Chinese EV maker Neo tying up with CATL for its battery-as-a-service product in China. Also, PSA Group is tying up with China's s and Daimler is expanding its partnership with CATL. A fascinating lifecycle report commissioned by Germany's Green Party Suggests that the lifetime CO2 emissions of a Tesla Model 3 would compare positively with a Mercedes C Class diesel once both vehicles had traveled 30,000 kilometers, a much lower distance than in past studies. This is factoring in modern battery manufacturing methods, but still using batteries and battery raw materials made in China. I'd very much like to see a life cycle analysis for batteries and battery materials made in Europe using renewable energy sources. Only then will we get a realistic comparison for how environmentally friendly batteries could be in the future. The world's largest battery, a 250-megawatt one-hour duration battery, opened in San Diego, California in August, taking over the mantle from Tesla's Hornsdale project in Australia. It's unlikely to hold the title for long since the 316-megawatt Ravenswood project in New York is set to start up early next year. In our data roundup this month, Europe continues to lead the way in EV sales and is on course to exceed its 2019 sales volumes by the end of August. Electric vehicles had a 7.2% market share in the EU in the second quarter, according to the European Automobile Manufacturers Association. Volumes in China went positive on a year-on-year basis, and there are easy comparisons over the next few months, but volumes aren't exactly rocketing up sequentially. And it looks likely that China will cede its leadership in global EV markets to Europe with barely a whimper over the next 6 to 12 months. Consumer batteries demand has been stronger than many expected in the second quarter, with the work-from-home trend accelerating demand for hearables, as well as laptop and tablet batteries. Smartphone demand, however, remains weak. August was another good month for equity performance, although once again this was more weighted towards downstream than upstream. Our manganese basket was our best performer, up 33% for the month, with our downstream basket up 23%. Cobalt stocks were in negative territory, and our nickel basket only managed 4%, substantially underperforming LME nickel, which was up 6%, and Chinese nickel sulfate prices, which rose 10%. So that's the end of our news roundup for this issue. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me or well, you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. So today I'm delighted to welcome Matt Harper, who's Chief Commercial Officer of AIM-listed Infinity Energy Systems, which is a manufacturer of vanadium redox flow batteries. Matt, welcome. Thanks, Matt, and uh, happy to be here. Great. Well, many listeners probably won't be familiar with VRFBs, so perhaps we could just Talk a little bit about the industry and then maybe go on to some more company specific questions about Infinity. So, just starting off, can you just explain the chemistry behind VRFBs and why they're often referred to as more sustainable than lithium ion batteries?
1: The fundamental difference between the batteries that most people are familiar with and a VRFB is is twofold. First of all, it's a, a battery where the physical structure is separated between the portion that stores the energy and the portion that generates power. And that gives us a tremendous amount of flexibility in how we manage both the power generation and the energy storage separately inside the same device. The other aspect is that the liquid electrolyte that stores the energy um, uses as a working material, you know, a metal called vanadium. um, And, you know, vanadium is widely available. It's more more common than copper in the Earth's crust. It's it's widely used in, in steel reinforcing. But traditionally it hasn't been part of the part of other batteries, and, and, and that's what we're trying to change. The benefit of both the use of vanadium and that decoupling of energy and power is that our batteries can charge and discharge essentially indefinitely. Um, you know, anyone who has a, a, a cell phone knows that you know, a lithium ion battery after you've charged it and discharged it, say a thousand times, um, mm-hmm. in about three years worth of use, uh, you know, the battery is significantly degraded. For consumer electronics devices, that's perfectly appropriate. But for grid-scale energy storage systems, you know, when we're trying to, you know, make a meaningful impact on renew uh, integrated renewable power onto the electric grid, not over years but over decades, our class of technology is, in our view, much more fit for purpose. Uh, the final point you talked about, uh, you, you asked a, 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 about sort of, you know, the, the sustainability question. Because of that non-degrading characteristic of the system, first of all, the, you know, the kind of overall life cycle impact from an environmental or sustainability perspective is a lot lower than comparable technologies. And specifically, the vanadium, the energy storage material in our batteries itself, is indefinitely reusable. We can repurpose that. We you know, bring that material back in from the field after you know years to decades of use, and then repurpose it either back into other applications
0: or into future battery projects. So, at the moment, what would you say are the key applications of VRFBs?
1: At the sort of macro level, you know, the key application is anywhere where you know high throughput through the battery system is a requirement of the, of that product over its life. And what I mean by high throughput is you know again taking advantage of that indefinite cycling capability, right? You're either providing you know many, many hours of storage on a regular basis, and then taking those many, many hours of storage and charging and discharging that battery daily or in some in some cases even more frequently than daily uh, you know, in whatever application you're going to be in. Practically speaking, where that has applications are either in commercial and industrial sites where electricity users are trying to optimize when they purchase electricity from the grid. Or the other, you know, segment that we spend a lot of time on is what we refer to as grid services providers. So companies who are building either standalone storage projects or integrating battery storage with renewable generation to maximize the value of that generation as they're delivering it onto the grid.
0: Okay. And VRFBs are often called long duration batteries. We've talked about durations of eight to 12 hours, which is significantly longer than for a lithium battery. Can you explain the advantages of VRFBs over lithium in that way? Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, You know, I mentioned at the top of our call that the energy
1: and power handling capabilities in our system are different, are separated from one another. But what that means is that you know, for so called longer duration applications, you know, on the order of, you know, eight to 12 hours, we can add that energy storage duration without significantly increasing the overall cost of the system. So when you're trying to do those longer duration applications, we can deliver a product that will deliver,
0: like I say, eight to 12 hours of power at less incremental cost as compared with other technologies. Okay, and so um, you know, if you've got a, for instance, a solar plant or a uh, a wind plant, what are the advantages of having sort of a, a VRFB uh, rather than a shorter duration battery?
1: Sure. Well, look, it comes to that combination of indefinite cycling with uh, you know long duration power delivery comparatively low cost. You know, lithium batteries are phenomenal at solving some of the you know the power intermittency or the power capacity problems on the grid. But when you've got a wind power plant or a solar power plant where you're trying to absorb six or eight or 10 hours of very, very good production during the day, uh, using solar as an example, and then deploy that energy to times where there are peak prices in the electricity markets, first of all, you need to be delivering that power over sort of those four to six hour peaks. But also, you need to be doing that on a daily basis you need to be cycling, you know, about 365 times, you know, times a year, and then doing that over the lifetime of the renewable project. So, you know, typically that's going to be a minimum of 20 to 25 years. Those are characteristics that lithium-ion batteries just, just can't touch, and, and where we've got a, a huge advantage both in terms of the basic
0: functionality, in terms of the project lifetime, and in terms of the the economics that we're able to deliver. Okay, great. So, I mean, given what we've talked about, how come then that lithium-ion is the most common battery tech for stationary storage at the moment? In my view,
1: uh, they've got a massive head
0: start, right? Lithium-ion batteries, their
1: real commercialization started sort of in the mid-90s with some of the portable electronic devices that were being developed at the time, things like camcorders where, you know, they were the first example of sort of high-power handheld devices that needed a really, really concentrated electricity source. you know, what we found, what we you know, I think it's easy to forget that, you know, the first large pioneering lithium ion storage project in the UK was at Leighton Buzzard that came online in 2014, just six years ago. Over the course of that six years, we've seen a massive inflection point in the delivery of these lithium-based uh, systems all around the world. And, you know, we think that we're, you know, we're on the same, we're on the same development curve. The pioneering project that we're working on right now that will, you know, in some ways be our latent buzzard is the project that we're doing with uh, Pivot Power, at the Energy Superhub Oxford. This is a, a five megawatt hour battery that is actually a, a you know, in the part of a hybrid array with, uh, um, with a lithium ion battery beside it. You know, our battery is going to be doing the, the high cycling portion of that project. And the lithium ion cells are going to be standing by to provide the deeper and and and, and Less frequently needed capabilities, which is, a, in our view, a perfect way of uh, hybridizing the two technologies together. So I think we're we're coming out that same curve. We've got pioneering projects that we're in the middle of building right now, um, and I think you know over the next two or three years we'll prove that we're on that same uh, that same inflection point in terms of uh, in terms of delivering a, a few tons of these products onto the grid.
0: Okay, and and there are a few uh, large scale lithium ion batteries that have been operating around the world. Could you just talk a little bit about them and and just give a little bit more detail? Sure. So, um, I mean, there's been over, so the the, the Vanadium Flow technology
1: was first deployed really in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Since that time, there's been over 100 megawatt hours of of that technology deployed, primarily in in Asia, but increasingly in in the US and in Europe as well. As the storage industry is maturing, people are starting to recognize. both the ability for energy storage to be a you know a bankable, dependable revenue generation source, but they're also starting to realize uh, the you know the limitations that are part and parcel of using lithium technologies, and that's starting to drive more and more of the existing product developers in our direction.
0: So I understand there's one of these in in Japan, and there's a, another large scale project in China. That's right. Yep, yeah. the largest.
1: The leading flow battery ever delivered was a, a project uh, delivered by by Sumitomo Electric that did some of the pioneering work in VRFBs. That's a 60 megawatt hour project that's uh, that's in, uh, in in the north of the country. There are a number of fairly large projects under development in China. And I think those are there's, those are currently in in, in construction. And uh, you know, likewise, we're we're starting to see word of of, of large deployments in North America in the Middle East. Um, and so I think,
0: uh, you know, in the next two years, we're going to see a real inflection point in terms of the, the number of large-scale VRFB projects around the world. Okay, and that leads us uh, nicely on to infinity So you're one of just a handful of uh, VRFB manufacturers. It was formed by the merger of Avalon and Red Tea Energy. Can you talk a little bit about the business strategy behind that combination? Sure, yeah, absolutely. The thing that we and we... Announced that merger or concluded that
1: merger, uh, you know, earlier this year in April of this year. But really, you know, behind the scenes, we've been we've been working to collaborate, you know, bring the two teams together and really sort of make sure that, that that the combination of the two companies would yield something that was truly best in breed. You know, we've been doing that work for for a good period of time before that merger actually happened. Both companies had fundamentally fantastic technology. Avalon had some advantages in terms of, you know, we'd really focused on, you know, the standardization and sort of systems engineering and product development. You know, Red Tea used their, their, their fundamentals around the technology itself and wrapped in some really good commercialization capabilities and obviously sort of access to capital markets. In our view, that combination is is you know has put us at a place where we're, we're you know we're in the lead in terms of our ability to deliver on you know these ever larger projects over the near term. And um, you know I think that, uh, that, that what the accommod- the combination has yielded a company to second
0: to none, and we're going to prove that in products we deliver over the coming year. And obviously, from what you're talking about, the VRFB is kind of like a, a modular product. What's your sort of what's your smallest of product at uh, Invinity, and, and, and yeah, yeah, what's your offering really?
1: Our smallest building block is has a capability of, of two hundred and twenty kilowatt hours. That's made up of you know six of our of our individual sort of functional modules. The reason we architect the product that way is so that we've got you know a very very high level of 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 redundancy and resiliency. You know, if we need to take one of these things offline to do some maintenance, we've still got, you know, the majority of the of the, of the capability of the system up and running at, at, at all times. I think the in terms of the, the, the capacity um, that we have to deliver those, you know, we're built up right now to deliver about 80 megawatt hours a year of these batteries. And I think it's important to note that one of the benefits that we have is that you don't need to build a gigafactory to build vanadium flow batteries at scale and at reasonable cost. Um, you know the, the, the capability that we have right now is it was established you know over the last two or three years you know by by Avalon and and Red Tea together at you know a cost of a capital cost of you know a few single to millions of dollars and it's not uh, it's not a it's not a big uh, capital expenditure to expand our production capacity. In our view, that's. It's hugely important as we go through this, you know, the growth that, we, that we're going to go through in the next uh, next two to three years that we don't have to raise, you know, a huge amount of capital to, to, to continue to fund that expansion. We know how to do it at a uh, comparatively low cost and can
0: grow those delivery capabilities, you know, as our, as our order book uh, grows as well. And what's the, what do you think the, the market size is for VRFPs at the moment? And, and, and what's the sort of growth rates we, we should expect? And what's the, the, the potential market?
1: Yeah, you know, look, like I think it's a little bit hard to put to put a number on sort of the exact growth rate or the exact market size. I think because we're we're opening up an adjacent opportunity. You know, we're not just cannibalizing lithium market, lithium's market, or, or or what have you. We really are delivering something that allows us to address possibilities and, and, and markets and, and projects that you know where lithium just uh, just wouldn't work out. So there's sort of an adjacency there. Look, our our, our medium term goal is ten percent of the global storage market. And you know, I mean, that seems like a small number, but it really is a massive number. This is a market that's growing incredibly quickly, and uh, you know, that's uh, that's that's where we think. Uh, you know,
0: given the capabilities, we know we can deliver where we where we think we can get to. And then, sort of in line with a lot of battery producers out there, you've been lowering your costs quite significantly since two thousand and sixteen. Do you think you can continue to lower costs, uh, and if so, sort of? What are the drivers of that? And, and I guess one of the key components of costs is the vanadium raw material and the volatility of, of the, those raw material prices. How, how do you expect to sort of control those going forward?
1: You're absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, since 2016, we've reduced our, our, our sort of top-line product costs you know, by about 70%, which has been a, a huge benefit to you know, the, the, our ability to deliver these, uh, these projects profitably our position on cost reduction is that we kind of focus on three key areas. We focus on you know, being able to use lower cost materials. And part of that is you know, higher volumes, but part of that is, is you know, R&D to, to get the, the fundamental cost of those materials down. We also want to you know, make better use of the materials we have. You can imagine that you know, if we're able to squeeze more kilowatt hours out of a kilogram of vanadium, you know, obviously that's beneficial to the, the overall cost of the system. And then finally, sort of, you know, this is, uh, you know, starting starting on work that we did really at Avalon and continuing you now to uh, into Infinity. our goal is to, you know, eliminate a lot of the ancillary components and simplify the system that sits around from the fundamental battery itself. It, just as an example, you know, we've gone to an all-air-cooled system, which is a lot simpler than some of the, you know, the refrigerant-based or air-conditioning-based cooling that you see in a typical lithium-ion battery. You're absolutely right, though, that all of that, Ties together with you know the cost of the underlying material, the vanadium that is the core of the of the electricity storage. Vanadium prices you know have there there is volatility in the market. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of that material goes into steel manufacturing, and so when there's a boom in the steel industry, we typically see disruptions in the uh, in in the price of vanadium itself. One of our answers to that is to be able to rent the vanadium into a project rather than selling it as, a, as, as part of the, the upfront capital cost. What that allows us to do, from our perspective, is it allows us to rent that material in at essentially the long-term capital cost of that material, or at the long-term market cost of that material, which is, which is very compelling from a business. That, that, that cost is very compelling from our perspective. But from the vanadium producers' perspective, that's also critical because it gives them a more stable offtake at a more stable price. So um, you know, it's it's kind of benefits it benefits both the supply and demand side of that of uh, that vanadium equation.
0: And I know in lithium iron, raw material costs can be like what sixty to seventy percent of the cost of the battery. Is that the sort of similar in, in vanadium, and, and I mean, if it is, then this leasing mechanism could potentially significantly lower the capital cost of a VRFB. The
1: capital cost is not driven to the same extent by the vanadium in our battery. Um, you know, I would say we're, we're we're sort of you know half of that range in terms of the cost in, you know, the cost of the vanadium inside one of our batteries at current market prices. With that said, it's, it's uh, you know, that, that 60% that you talked about with lithium is split up amongst a number of different components. It's cobalt, it's nickel, it's, you know, it's, it's the lithium itself, depending on what, what specific lithium-ion technology you're looking at. And, and, and so so the vanadium, in our case, is just a single element. So it is something that we're very, very focused
0: on and, uh, you know, something that we are going to continue to optimize with our partners uh, in the rating supply space. And could you talk a little bit about your sales pipeline and, and what sort of order backlog you've got, particularly which countries are your key markets?
1: To talk, first of all, about sort of the, the sales pipeline, I mean, uh, you know, what we've, what we've asked publicly is that we only, you know, we only talk about deals that have closed. And we've, uh, over, the, over the past, uh, since uh, beginning of the year, we've announced, you know, about seven megawatt hours or, or, or 200 of our modules that, that, we've, that we've sold so far. In terms of our, of our pipeline, you know, we projected about another five megawatt hours um, to close before the end of this year. And, you know, I can, what I'll say is that we'll, you know, we're, we're on track to do that. You know, we, we, we are feeling confident that those opportunities will convert into contracts within that time frame. In terms of the, the countries that are key markets, you know I, I, obviously just by virtue of uh, our, our geographic position, you know the UK and North America are where we are focusing the majority of our business development opportunities right now. Historically, Avalon had had a fair amount of activity in Asia as well um, you know, that's something that we' that we're continuing to develop, especially through some sort of third uh, third- party partnerships that we're uh, developing on, on that side of the water. And uh, obviously, there are other countries, uh, you know, for example, Australia, where, you know, renewable energy is becoming a, a much larger part of their overall generation mix, while at the same time, you know, putting a lot of stress on, uh, you know, both, both the electricity markets and the electricity grid infrastructure that supports that, uh, that renewable energy generation. So some of those countries as well, you know, we're going to be entering into opportunistically as, uh, as, the, uh, as the possibilities arise.
0: And what's your most uh, recently reported uh, cash position and do you have access to any um, credit?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we reported our financials, uh, you know, at, uh, at your end uh, earlier, sorry, um, earlier as uh, in, in, in August. We did close a significant fundraise at our merger back in April and, and um, you know, those funds are, are sufficient for our ongoing operation.
0: Okay. We're hearing a lot about the availability of European green finance in the markets at the moment. Uh, are you seeing easier access to capital than you did in the past? We're starting to hear about easier access to capital. You know, we've heard the same sort of thing.
1: There are uh, this the green finance scheme and similar schemes that uh, you know are, are, are starting to show up on our radar screen. Our views that you know so far they've been a little bit slow to roll out. Um, certainly, the COVID situation has not helped uh, you know accelerate those funding mechanisms into the market. You know, however, we're you know we're watching you know those opportunities of interest, and I think that uh, you know, there will be opportunities for us to take
0: advantage of in
1: the
0: near term. And I, I just uh, quickly, obviously, uh, uh, different companies in different sectors are impacted in different ways by the pandemic. One of the things that's been very noticeable in Europe is that in Northern Europe and in the UK electricity prices have gone negative due to weak demand and uh, a lot of production from renewables. Are you seeing more interest now in, in storage than perhaps you were six or 12 months ago?
1: Absolutely. And, and, and look, we're seeing the same thing in North America, you know, especially in jurisdictions like California that already have a lot of uh, renewable generation. You know, you're seeing you know, zero or negative market prices for electricity, not you know, on occasion, but for many hours of a lot of days. In our view, that has sort of given us a window into the future, right? You know, the, the decrease in electricity consumption that we've seen through COVID has given us an indication of what electricity markets are likely to look like as renewables become a larger percentage of the total electricity mix. And, you know, especially where you've got those low or, or, or negative electricity prices, you know, the ability of batteries to come in, absorb that excess, and then redeploy it at other times of the day when uh, electricity is incredibly expensive not only is a huge opportunity for us, but it's a huge opportunity to optimize the economic performance of the overall grid system.
0: And just a sort of an additional question that sort of comes up from that, how quick is it? How long does it take you to sort of build a VRFB installation?
1: It really depends on the characteristics of the installation itself. From a sort of equipment delivery perspective, you know, we can we can usually turn you know product out of our uh, out of our factory within somewhere between you know four and five months of, of of receipt of order. Typically, though, what we find is that the you know it's the uh, it's not the equipment supply side that is the limitation on some of these projects. It's you know the the interconnection agreements with the local utilities. It's the contracts with you know whoever is your who conduit with the local market. And uh, and sort of the, uh, you know, the the, the engineering and, and, and safety work that has to go around, you know, large-scale renewable projects like this. Those things can take, you know, easily six to nine months in and of themselves. So um, we typically come in um, at
0: the back end of those and deliver the product at the same time as those final engineering and construction aspects are in place. Okay, great. And for you, I mean, obviously, you speak to a lot of investors, you speak to a lot of people in the market. What's the main thing that you think that the stock market doesn't really get about infinity?
1: I think it's the size of the opportunity, right? People are looking at lithium battery development and deployment today and saying, wow, this is amazing. This is huge. This is the biggest new sector that you know we're looking at. If the future electricity system is going to be, you know, truly based around renewables, you know, we don't need storage that's just going to fill in, you know, the peaks of electricity demand, which is what lithium is doing in a lot of jurisdictions today. We need storage that's going to take, you know, wind or solar or geothermal or or tidal energy, and that is going to deploy that 24 hours a day, every day of the year and for decades. That is something that you know we're the only battery on the electric grid, certainly the electric grid right now that has proven in the field that we have the capability to do that and just you know if we just look at the number of gigawatt hours around the world that are deployed at the peak times where lithium currently serves and in the rest of the you know the rest of the of, of the the total demand, which is what we're intending to serve you know the, the opportunity to serve that, that that baseload demand is maybe. It's quite a bit larger than just serving those peaks. That is the opportunity that we're focused on. And it's an opportunity that is, especially as electrification of transport increases, this is an opportunity that's measured in the trillions of dollars per year. Now, no company can ever be a hope to be a dominant, dominant player in an opportunity that big. But you know, like I said, our batteries are the only ones currently serving the grid that have the economics required to do that renewable generation, you know, into
0: into dispatchable 24-7 power. And so we think we've got a huge head start on that trillion-dollar-a-year race. Brilliant. Matt Harper, Chief Commercial Officer of AIM-listed Invinity Energy Systems. Thanks very much for your time today. Thanks very much, Matt. Great talking with you. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for September. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, Editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.